In the Buddha's teaching, there's a vast vision of time and space. We talked of 31 different planes of existence, from the lower realms to the human realms to the deva realms and brahma realms. So there are all these possibilities in terms of realms of taking life. <clears throat> we talked of countless world systems, you know, endless number of world systems in which these planes of existence uh, are happening. He talked of the endless cycle of life and death and rebirth, spoke in terms of countless lifetimes. So it's quite a big picture that he had of the nature of things. <clears throat> and we may have some sense of this and through direct experience, or we may not. You know, either take it on faith uh, or not. But there's another way to understand and appreciate the vastness of the Dharma journey, the vastness of possibility. It's not so much by looking out into the universe, but rather by looking in at the very nature of mind, the nature of awareness, of how suffering is created and how it's possible to actually be free of that suffering, to be liberated. And what's so important for us, and I think we have that sense very much in a retreat like this, is that these questions are not theoretical not that we're studying this in some course in Buddhism, you know, of how suffering is created and how we can be free. A retreat like this is the very laboratory of understanding, the laboratory of, of growing wisdom. How can we be free in our moment-to-moment -moment experience? That's really the challenge for us, and it's our practice. There's a wide array of teachings in different spiritual traditions. And even among the different Buddhist traditions, there's this array and variety of teachings. But all of them converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind and heart. They all come together on this essential question of freedom. And the Buddha described it very succinctly in his own words many, many times in the discourses. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. Other places he said, this is the deathless, what is beyond the cycle of birth and death. This is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. So it's a very simple, incisive statement about what liberates the mind. Centuries later in India, 
one of the great Indian Buddhist adepts, Talopa, was giving very similar teachings to his disciple Naropa, and that was the beginning of the whole lineage. Naropa was the teacher of Marpa, Marpa the teacher of Milarepa, and so a whole the whole Tibetan lineage also expresses the same essential understanding. But Talopa said to Naropa, you are not fettered, you are not bound by appearances. You are not fettered or bound by experiences. You are fettered by attachments, so cut your attachments. In the Diamond Sutra, one of the great Mahayana texts, again the same message, develop a mind which does not cling to anything at all. Now I think what's important for us in our practice is not to imagine this state of non-clinging as some far-off meditative attainment not to put it into the future. Someday maybe we'll be able to understand this or taste it or experience it. Liberation through non-clinging is what our practice is now. It's what our practice is moment to moment. Non-clinging is what we're practicing. And all the techniques and all the methods and all the different systems of metaphysics and philosophical explanations, they all serve this end. That is the mind of no craving, the mind of no clinging. What I'm sure is extremely vivid to you by now is that the flow of experience keeps changing. And sometimes it's pleasant, and sometimes it's unpleasant. It's just this flow of experience, the flow of appearances, constantly unfolding. But the practice of liberation is exactly the same, regardless of what the experience happens to be. The practice of liberation is through non-clinging, non-grasping. One of the hardest things to learn, and we need to hear it again and again and again, is that we're not practicing in order to have some better experience, some nicer experience some more blissful experience. What we're practicing is the mind that is not clinging to anything, that is not holding on to anything, that is not grasping at anything. We're really practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. And we can feel it, actually, in our hearts in that moment when we're out of the grip of the clinging, grasping mind, it feels like the heart is released, the mind is ungripped, and we get a taste 
of the freedom that's possible. So the teaching is very clear. It's very direct. It's very simple. The question for us, I think, is how can we accomplish this? How can we accomplish the mind of no clinging, of no grasping? (coughs) One way that we've talked about in different contexts, but it's such a powerful doorway or entranceway to the experience of non-clinging is through the awareness of impermanence, the awareness of change. When we're attentive, when we're not distracted, we can observe impermanence on every level of experience. You know, from the grandest, most macroscopic, to the most microscopic. We think of clusters of galaxies. I don't, I don't know what's bigger than that. I don't know, maybe the whole universe. <laughs> we're, <coughs> as you know, <coughs> we're often seeing light from stars or galaxies that are no longer even there. You know, the star has died, and yet so far away that we're still seeing the light from it. So the impermanence of even these massive aspects of the physical universe, all the way down, you know, to the most insubstantial of the subatomic particles with all those wonderful names, you know, quarks and quirks and whatever they are. In a more ordinary world, we see impermanence just in the ordinary cycle of life and death. You know, of people, of animals, of situations. We see impermanence (coughs) very clearly, and this is one of the very um, nice aspects of the three-month course at this time, in the change of seasons. You know, we just see the changes that are happening in nature and in the weather around us. We see impermanence in the highs and lows of the retreat. You know, some sitting, some days, you feel wonderful, you feel happy, you feel clear and light and mindful. And the next day you feel terrible and depressed and bored and it's painful. And it just keeps changing. Where are all these different experiences now? What's happened to them? Now, these things which are so compelling that we get so entangled with and so identified with and we cling to so much in one way or another, either through attachment or through resistance. Yet when we look with the eye of wisdom, it's so clear that it's all part of this endlessly passing show. Not a single experience that one has had on retreat or in one's life has any lasting significance. We see the impermanence on a very momentary level, just the momentary arising and passing away. One of the very strongest aspects of our delusion 
is that when we look back at our past experience, we see this so clearly, and yet when we look ahead to what's coming, we forget again and again. We just keep looking forward as if some new hit of experience is going to finally satisfy us or bring us some kind of lasting happiness or meaning or fulfillment or completion. Even though we know, not theoretically, we know for ourselves that nothing in the past has done it. So why do we think that something that's going to be coming just around the corner is going to do it? It's delusion. We're, we're just lost in this, this enchantment. It's through seeing and reflecting on and contemplating and being very present for the truth of change on all of these levels and on whatever level we look. It's through the seeing of the change very directly that the clinging and attachment to things begins to get deconditioned. Because we see the pointlessness of it and we see the suffering that's created by the attachment. The liberating power of seeing impermanence very clearly and very intimately in the moment was highlighted in one quite startling teaching of the Buddha. Something that I find quite startling anyway when he said that it would be better to live for a single day seeing the momentariness, the rising and falling of phenomena, to see deeply the momentary rising and falling of phenomena, that it is live a single day seeing that than a hundred years without seeing it. What's startling about this is when we think of all the other things we live for in our lives. And probably if we went up to somebody on the street and said, you know, what's really of most importance to you? It would be a very rare person who would say, seeing the momentary (laughs) arising and passing away of things. That's what's so startling about this. And the Buddha is saying, better live a single day seeing this than a hundred years doing everything else we do and everything else we value. Living a single day seeing deeply the impermanence of things than a hundred years without seeing it. Why? Because this deep insight and repeated insight over and over again into the impermanent changing nature is the key, is the doorway, is the entranceway to the mind of no clinging. It's the doorway to the experience of freedom. So don't underestimate the value of seeing the impermanence sitting after sitting, walking after walking, that has a powerful deconditioning influence in the mind. So in our practice, 
we want to pay attention not only to what it is that's arising, you know, a thought, a sound, a sensation, a mood, whatever, but we also want to pay very close and careful attention to what happens to each of these objects. And this is how we needed to report to Upandita, and it was so valuable. The reporting, the reporting form was very exact with him. You know, we, we need to go in and tell him pretty clearly exactly what was happening in our sitting or some part of our sitting. You know, there was the breath and I experienced this, this, and this, and a thought, a sensation, whatever it was. But not only what it was that was arising, we needed to report on what happened as we noted it. Did it get stronger? Did it get weaker? Did it shift position? Did it change in some way? And because of the demand of that reporting system, it's as if it forced the mind into the observation, the careful observation of the changing nature of every single experience that arose. Now what's so amazing is that every single experience at every sense door in every moment is revealing the truth of change. So this is not some kind of subtle thing that we have to practice 35 years in order to get a glimpse of change. It's happening all the time at every sense door. Are we seeing it carefully and understanding the implications of what we're seeing? Now, sounds disappear, sensations are changing, thoughts come and go, breath comes in, it comes out. And each one of these things, each one of these experiences themselves, is not a single undifferentiated mass. Now, when we listen to a sound, Sound is not just one thing. The sound is a process changing in every moment. A breath, when you're with the breath. It's the in or the out, the rise, the fall. It's not a single thing. It's a current. It's a flow of changing sensations. We can be with it, you know, with that level of care and attentiveness until we get in our bones this changing nature. If we are interested, as I presume everyone here is, in liberation, why else would you be here? (laughs) That's a nice holiday. (laughs) But if we are actually interested in liberation, the Buddha gave very explicit guidance. And this is what's so amazing about his teachings. Because it's They are so direct and so to the point of what frees the mind. He gave very explicit guidance relating to that part of our experience which most conditions are grasping. 
which most conditions are clinging. This is what he said. Whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the cessation, the ending of those feelings. Whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, contemplate impermanence, contemplate fading away, the ending of those feelings, contemplate relinquishment, letting go. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we do not cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana, attain freedom. So everything we do in practice, now all the methods, using a primary object, and mental noting, and deepening concentration, and open choiceless awareness, everything we do in practice is a tool serving this end, serving the end of the mind that does not cling. But the Buddha, and this is really an aspect, I think, of his great compassion, he didn't just stop there, liberation through non-clinging. He pointed out to us where we habitually do cling, in case we're missing it. You know, in case we're just not quite seeing where we get attached and where we hold on. So he laid it all out for us, and it's a great gift. One major area of clinging, big area, is attachment and clinging to pleasant sense experience. We like pleasure. We like what's pleasant. Nice body feelings. Pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant smells, enjoyable thoughts. I mean, you know the pleasure of coming in for sitting and being lost in reverie for an hour. It's nice. The sitting goes fast. You don't feel much discomfort in the body, in the mind. Just enjoy it. And it does enjoy it. You know, it is a kind of sense pleasure. But investigating our attachment to these different kinds of sense pleasures, and we each all have our own you know, particular preferences for what we enjoy and like, it begins to reveal to us the nature of addiction in the mind, the nature of fascination, the nature of enchantment. And it goes very deep. This is not an insignificant conditioning in us. This desire for the pleasant is the driving force of samsara. The Dalai Lama tells a wonderful story of just how deep this goes. He was teaching in L.A. Uh, at some conference, staying in a hotel, and every day he drove to the conference center, and they passed by on a road where they sold you know, all the latest electronic gizmos. And he, I guess he has a, a strong interest you know, in technological stuff. 
And so every day they drive by and he'd see all the stuff in the window. And he said at the conference that by the end of the week he found himself wanting things and he didn't even know what they were. <laughs> but he could just see the mind wanting. Well, this is the Dalai Lama. So if we seem to have some desire in our mind, don't be discouraged. <laughs> but can we learn to see it instead of not see it? Uh, instead of simply being caught up by it. An image which I may have mentioned earlier, um, that's been very helpful for me in my practice in understanding and watching desire in the mind. It's the image I've gotten in my practice of when things are going smoothly, they're just kind of rolling along, and it, it almost feels like I'm just on a freeway, a highway someplace. You know, and then I see a big billboard advertising some kind of amusement, you know, my, whatever my desire of the day is. And so this billboard comes, I see this billboard, this desire in the mind, and it's just as if my mind takes the exit, goes off, hangs out in the amusement park for however long, and then realize this isn't going anyplace. <laughs> you know, and I get back on the highway. And one does that few thousand times. <laughs> you know, and then you're going along the highway and you see a sign for the same kind of amusement or a different one, you know, and we get off the exit, but we're a little more mindful by now. So instead of going all the way down and spending all these hours in the amusement park, we get off the exit, realize what we've done, and get back on the highway again. Do that many, many times. Finally, we get to a place, at least at times in our practice, when we're just going along, we see the billboard, the desire, and we just know it's desire, desire. We see the but we don't even get off the exit. The possibility of developing that level of freedom from clinging, from grasping, from being caught up in this desire for sense pleasure. So the question really is how often do we take these exits in our minds and in our lives you know, and spend either shorter or longer periods of time lost without awareness, without mindfulness? Just think of what it would be like if you were watching TV and your mind wanted everything that was advertised. Oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. It would be a hell realm. You know, it would be this energy. <laughs> but at least in watching TV, most of us have learned to tune out the commercials, you know, either inwardly or through the mute button. So with TV, it's pretty easy. But what about these commercials in the mind that keep coming? Can we mute them in some way? Can we not buy in? It can be so subtle and so quick. And this is what, in some ways, fascinating just to watch. A couple of years ago, but it wouldn't have had to be a couple of years ago, it could have been <coughs> earlier today, because it happens all the time. But this one particular situation stands out in my mind because I was on retreat in my house. 
I was in the middle of a long retreat. My mind was quiet, still, and concentrated. I was going from the upstairs. I finished sitting. I was going downstairs to do some walking. And on the way down the steps, as I was mindfully, step by step by step, the most fleeting thought and image of a cup of tea entered my mind. It was like, like that. And my body turned to the kitchen. <laughs> and I spent the next ten minutes, I was, you know, boiling the water, making the tea. And I thought, boy, if that lit of a thought could actually change the course of my life, you know, what about more powerful thoughts? Who's running this show? The power of wanting, the power of desire is very deeply conditioned. And so we really need to practice becoming aware of it in the mind. It's not that they're going to stop coming anytime soon, probably. They're going to come, but what is our relationship to them? At least to some extent, can we learn to see them arise in the mind without the sense of addiction, of identification with them. And we really begin to understand that addiction is the suffering and renunciation is the freedom. Now we get that not on a theoretical basis, we really get to feel it, the felt sense of what a relief it is to be out of the grip of desire. And so we practice this. In addition to pleasant sense experience and even an arena that's perhaps more difficult to let go of the desire is the desire for the pleasant meditative experiences. Because there are times in the practice, and perhaps you've had some of these times, you know, occasionally, of when it's really quite blissful. And not necessarily blissful in kind of an excited, ecstatic way, necessarily. It could just be a feeling of calm or tranquility or peace in ways that we have never experienced before. Now, the possibility and the experience of this deep, deep, deep coming to rest and calm and it is tremendously appealing. And then we start practicing for that. We become attached to that. We cling to that. And as wonderful as these states are, and as healing as they are, it's still not liberation. It's not freedom. Now, the Buddha gave one discourse where he said, don't stop without, don't stop within. We don't want to get stagnated in the sense of attachment any place, not to things on the outside, not to experiences on the inside. There's an even more subtle kind of attachment to meditative states, not only to the peace or the calm or the joy or the the different kinds of rapture that happens, 
<coughs> we can become fascinated by the very unfolding process. You know, it gets so interesting just watching things unfold on increasingly subtle levels. And my mind was very prone to this kind of attachment. At one point, Upandita told me, you're too attached to subtlety. Because I was so busy looking, 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 trying to get deeper and more fine. And, And I didn't even realize to me, it felt like all this was in the service of the meditation. I didn't even see that it was just another manifestation of the clinging, wanting mind. Now, we're looking so deeply into the process itself of unfolding experience as if somehow the next moment's experience will somehow bring us to completion, to fulfillment. We need to make a very critical shift of understanding that resolution or completion or fulfillment does not come from some experience just around the corner. It comes in the very moment that we release the mind from clinging or grasping or craving. And we can do that in any moment's experience. In any moment, we can relax back into the mind ungripped by attachment to what's arising. And I like that phrase, ungripped, because it really feels like that. It feels like when we're caught by clinging, we are in the grip of something. It's almost like we learn how to disengage the gears of attachment. It's like like depressing the clutch in a car to disengage the gears. The gears are still going, but there's no engagement. In the same way, can we disengage the gears of attachment so that everything is still happening, but it's happening as a free flow of experience? without the grasping, without the clinging. One teacher expressed this whole process of enlightenment, of freedom, in a very uh, helpful way, I think. He described this process of enlightenment in the phrase, short moments, many times. So instead of thinking there's some kind of state of non-attachment which we have to reach and sustain and live in, which itself becomes another kind of attachment, can we simply relax the heart, become ungripped from craving, from the wanting mind, short moments of that, with a breath, with a sound, with a sensation, short moments, many times. And in that way, the way we live and the way we relate to experience is transformed. Okay, so this is the first big arena of attachment. Attachment to sense pleasures or meditative pleasures. The second area of attachment is something that I think Carol spoke quite a lot about. 
less time. The attachment to views and opinions. And it's quite amazing how many opinions we have about things. Opinions or judgments of ourselves, of others. It actually is astounding. People go to war and torture each other over religious beliefs, over attachment to religious beliefs. It's amazing that it's forces in our own minds. I mean, it's not so different what's going on in our own minds as that. Just acting it out a little more forcefully. I don't know whether it's happened this year or not, but very often we've had our own version of that, you know, in the IMS window wars. Some people like the windows open, some people like the windows closed, and the wars happen. Krishnamurti had, as he often does, a very uh, helpful line. He said, beliefs divide people. When we're attached to our point of view, or attached to our opinions, our perspectives, it's the source of conflict and suffering. And even when we have some authentic understanding, some authentic insight, can we still keep an open mind about other perspectives? Because if we don't, that is the basis for the rampant sectarianism that exists in all of the spiritual traditions, Buddhism included. Because people get attached to their way of seeing things, to their way of practice. Even Genuine understandings can be co-opted by clinging. I'm a person who's had a really deep experience of selflessness. <laughs> and our life becomes, starts to evolve about being that person who's had the experience of selflessness. <laughs> this happens. We want to see that all the systems, all the metaphysical systems, all the methods, all of our insights, all of the wisdom, is all in the service of the mind of no clinging, not clinging to anything. The attachment to sense pleasures, meditative experiences, attachment to opinions, the deepest attachment we have the core attachment, the one that's at the root of all the others, is the clinging or attachment to the notion of self, of I. This is the biggest, most deeply rooted delusion of our lives. We create this sense of self, this felt sense of self, is created in any moment that we identify with the various arising experiences. The experiences themselves 
are selfless. And yet the wrong view in the mind, when we don't view things correctly, this process of identification with things is what creates the felt sense of self. So just as some examples of how we do this, we identify very strongly with the body. Now it's often the first response to the question, who am I? Well, this is who I am. You know, we look in the mirror in the morning. Yep, that's me. You know, it's very familiar. But it's all because we're not looking deeply enough. I don't know that any of you have ever been at an autopsy. Or, as I've mentioned before, I think kind of the laparoscopic surgery, where they, you know, with laser and they, they have a miniaturized camera inside the body as they're doing the surgery, and so you can get to see the body from the inside. Well, whether, you know, through an autopsy where the body's cut open and we see, or through, you know, the miniaturized video camera, doesn't look like me at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, the organs and the blood and the muscles and the... It's not very appealing. And what is it that we would identify with? Yes, I'm the liver. You know, or I'm the gallbladder. <laughs> but somehow it's nicely packaged in skin and all of a sudden, yes, this is me. This is who I am. It doesn't make any sense. But we're so accustomed to this superficial level of perception that we just look at it in this way, you know, and identify. Yeah, that's me and this is you know, all these other people. When we identify with the body as being something substantial, as being self, what happens is that we're simply strengthening our attachment, our clinging to the body, both our own and others. And a consequence of this strengthening attachment, an inevitable consequence of it, is fear of loss and fear of death. Where does that fear come from? It comes from attachment to the body, our own or others. Why? Because we're just not seeing deeply. We're not looking carefully enough. We create a sense of self when we identify with thoughts. And this happens, as you know, countless times during the day. We have the sense, I'm thinking. Whenever we're lost in a thought, there's that felt sense that there's someone thinking it. There's someone who's having the thought. Now, we identify with the stories that we make up about ourselves, about other people, about our practice. Now, sometime you come in and you have a wonderful sitting. The mind is concentrated and mindful and effortless. I'm really a good yogi. I'm getting this, finally. You know, this is how it's going to be from now on. 
and we just create this story about ourselves through identifying with that thought. It doesn't last very long because, you know, the next sitting we come in and the mind is restless and whatever, you know, a lot of difficulty. And we get lost in another story about ourselves. I'm a terrible yogi. I'll never get this. This is worse than the first day. What's going on here? It's simply thoughts arising in the mind that we're not seeing as thoughts. We identify with them, getting lost in them, and we create this whole sense of self and story about ourselves through that lack of mindfulness, the lack of wisdom about what's really happening. We create a strong sense of self when we get lost in thoughts of past, thoughts of future, and we get lost in judgment, the judging thoughts about ourselves or others. Have you noticed that when there's a strong judgment, even a weak judgment, about ourselves or others, that it's as if we've solidified a sense of self and separation and other. And it's so amazing to watch this and just what the mind will do, what it will stoop to. Somebody came in once to an interview and said, you know, the mind has no pride. And it's... One time sitting in the dining room on retreat, I was just watching my mind have a judgment about every single person who walked in the dining room. They walk too fast, they walk too slow, they take too much food, they take too little food. I don't like what they're wearing. Endless. And at a certain point, in just watching my mind do this, it became humorous. <laughs> and now it's the key. That really was the key, because in the moment that it became humorous, I stopped buying into those thoughts. I began to see. These are just thoughts in the mind. They're empty of any substance. When we don't identify with them, we're not creating any sense of self. So it's very important that we learn to see the nature of thought. Because when we're not aware that we're thinking, we create whole worlds of self that a self inhabits. And when we are aware that we're thinking, we see that a thought as a phenomenon there's nothing much there. Kenzi Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan masters of this century, I won't read the whole thing uh, tonight, but there's just one line in here. Thoughts have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no reason why thoughts should have so much power of us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Pay attention to the difference in your experience of when you're lost in a thought, what that's like, and the experience when there's awareness that thinking is there. It's the difference between bondage and freedom. And we can practice that endless number of times a day. 
This is tremendously freeing for us in our lives. The only power that thoughts have is the power that we give them. If we can see that clearly, our life becomes much, much easier. Okay, we create a sense of self when we identify with the body. We create a sense of self when we get lost in thought, when we get identified with thoughts. We create a sense of self when we identify with the various arising emotions. Oh, happiness or sadness or fear or depression or anger or rage or excitement or interest, whatever it may be. Because we relate to the emotions when we identify with them. I'm angry. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm depressed. And this is a tremendous burden. We don't even stop there. We go even further. Not only I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed. I'm an angry person. I'm a depressed person. I'm a happy person. We build a whole superstructure of self on top of some momentary changing conditions. It's amazing how strongly invested and involved we are in our identification with the different emotions that come. This is a little experiment. And you can do this particularly with the hindrances, but it could be with any emotion. Start, start with the hindrances. Begin to see them or experience them not only as a particular hindrance, but begin to experience them as a contraction of self. When we're lost in a hindrance, lost in anger or desire or restlessness or doubt or whatever it is, that being lost in the hindrance is a contraction into the prison of self. And we can feel it as a contraction, as a narrowing of our world. The Buddha used a series of images or similes uh, in talking about coming out of the hindrances He talked about it as if one comes out of debt or free from illness or released from prison. It's all these images of getting free from a limitation, free from a narrowness. So pay attention. And I just want to reiterate something which I know you know well. But all of this, it's not about theory. It's really about our own investigation of our experience here. What's it like when we are identified with an emotion? When we create a sense of self in it, or when we can be with the emotion in the same way that we're with the sound. So it's in no way closing off or denying or pushing away. It's being totally open, totally in the experience of it, but without personalizing without identifying with it, just as we're with the sound. The sound appears and is known. Can the emotion appear and be known with that same ease? It's not easy because we're in the habit 
with emotions perhaps more than anything else, of personalizing them. So we need to learn how to see or be with emotion in a different way, in a freer way. The poet and mystic Rumi, what I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. Just imagine what it would be like to leap out of this personality instead apart from this leaping. At the most subtle level of attachment, of identification, it's identification with the body, with thoughts, with emotions, but the most subtle level of identification in which we create a sense of self is that attachment or identification with awareness. We identify with the knowing and so create a knower, an observer, a witness which is somehow separate from experience. As a way of freeing ourselves from this identification and attachment, something I've mentioned at different times, is relanguaging things in the passive voice. You know, a sound being known, a thought being known, a sensation being known. Because when we put it in the passive voice, it takes the I out of it. There's no self there. Simply experience being known. And then we investigate the aspect that is perhaps the most interesting at all of all. Experiences being known, known by what? What is the nature of this awareness? And when we look for awareness, there's nothing to be found. We can't find it. We can't locate it. We can't say, yes, that's where awareness is. That's what it is. It's invisible. It's clear. It's unobstructed, like space. There's nothing between awareness and the appearance or experience arising. There's nothing between awareness and a sound or awareness and sensation. It's completely unobstructed, like space. It's lucid. Its nature is simply to know. There's one Tibetan text, a very powerful one. Or one of the refrains, it's called the, in, in its popular version, it's called the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And it's a text really pointing again and again simply to the nature of mind this empty, clear, cognizant, lucid, unobstructed nature. But the theme or the refrain that runs through the text says again and again, look within your own mind. And it's just a very direct reminder not to take this as some philosophical statement about the nature of mind, but as we're sitting to look into the nature of our mind, things are being known moment after moment, the breath, the movement, sensations and walking. In every moment, things are being known. Known by what? 
What is the nature of awareness? We can each discover this for ourselves. It is the nature of mind. Buddhadasa, who is one of the great Thai monks of this century, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of awareness, we call it mind. We should really call mind emptiness, because there's nothing to be found at all. And yet because of awareness, because of that quality, that function, we call it mind. Emptiness is a difficult concept in Buddhism because in English the word sometimes is taken to mean blankness or nothingness. And this is not at all what emptiness in the Buddhist context means. The most direct experience of emptiness, not a philosophical explanation, but the most direct experience of the meaning of emptiness is in the experience of the mind that is not clinging to anything. The mind free of clinging, of fixation, of attachment. And we can all have this even if it's just for a moment. Short moments many times. The mind released from the grip of wanting, of attachment, of holding, of fixating, short moments many times of that mind released, the heart released, in that moment we have the experience of emptiness. Emptiness of self. Emptiness of I and mine. Everything that we call self is simply an appearance arising out of conditions. I'll just share with you one example of this. Some years ago, I was on Maui. And do you know what a blowhole is? It's it's a cave on the shore under the waterline. And a blowhole is when there's a hole in the top of the cave. So when the water rushes in, the the waves rush in, the pressure of the waves as they're hitting the back wall of the, the the cave, it forces the water up through the hole. You know, it's like a sort of the spouting of a whale. You know, and so this is happening every time a wave comes in. We were watching this blowhole, and being Hawaii, you know, it's a sunny day and So whenever there was this geyser of water coming out of the blowhole, just when the light conditions were right, there'd be this momentary rainbow. And the rainbow would appear, and then the water would fall down, and the rainbow would disappear. And then another wave would come in, big geyser of water, uh, another rainbow, and the rainbow would disappear. And it became so clear that the rainbow was simply an appearance 
arising out of momentary conditions coming together. That the rainbow was not something existing in itself. It was an appearance arising out of conditions, and as the conditions changed, the rainbow just dissolved. And then conditions reappeared, the rainbow reappeared. There was no rainbow in and of itself. What we call self is this similar appearance out, arising out of momentary conditions. That's kind of nice. We're all rainbows. <laughs> That's a nice image. These arising appearances, these arising experiences of sight and sound, sensation and thought and emotion and awareness itself does not belong to anybody. It's not that there's some little Joseph back in here to whom all of these things are happening. Joseph and each one of us, it's just, it's an appearance arising out of this constellation of changing experiences. The empty phenomena rolling on. So all of this can be summed up in one very powerful and succinct teaching of the Buddha. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all of the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever has realized this has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Liberation through non-clinging. So this is our practice, moment to moment. This is the practice of freedom. Sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.